Hi, everybody. Grab a Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 1. We'll get to Acts in just a second, but still, we'll start in Philippians 1. As you're turning there, I have a very exciting announcement to make to you. As many of you know, a year or so ago, we started a little podcast called Everyday Theology, where it started out just a couple of us, now there's a bunch of us, and every week we drop a new episode where we sit in a room and we talk about theology, we talk about the, the text that we used for the sermon the previous Sunday, we chase some rabbits for a while, and we poke a lot of fun at each other, and we have a grand old time doing it, and surprisingly, people want to listen to that. Well, we've expanded that. We now offer three different Everyday Theology podcasts. There's one about songs. There's one about the stories of the lives of the people in our church. And we've wanted for some time to begin to expand on that with more content, not just podcasts. And we wanted there to be a blog. We wanted there to be some long-form theology articles and book reviews. Well, I'm excited to announce to you that that website is now live. It went live this week. We've been working on this for several months so everydaytheology.church is now a thing, and you can get on it. Don't do it now. You can get on it later, <laughs> and you can read those articles and those blogs, and uh, we will continue to build out all of that content in the, the days and weeks and months and years to come. Thank you for supporting all those endeavors. But one of the characteristics of the Apostle Paul that I appreciate so very much, and, and we've seen it multiple times as we walk through all these passages here in the back end of the book of Acts, I appreciate his confidence. Every environment that he stands in, he is supremely confident. And in Philippians 1, what we know is he's sitting in prison as he writes Philippians, but he's writing this as he's sitting in prison in Caesarea, which we've been looking at in Acts 20, 23, 24, 25, and as he's sitting there for a period of a couple of years, he writes this letter, and you will see, again, his extreme confidence come out in what he writes. Philippians chapter 1, let's start in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances, arrested in prison, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know what I will choose. But I'm hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. 
And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith, so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus and me through my coming to you again. That's a lot of confidence for a man sitting in a jail cell, falsely accused, falsely arrested. And here he sits, laying out with this confidence, all that's happened to me has served for the greater progress of the gospel. The good news of Jesus is spreading in even this place because that's where I am. So I'm taking the good news of Jesus there to live as Christ, to die as gain, to the point where he says, I don't know which one I'll choose. I don't know anybody who thinks that way. How about you? Oh, if, if you had to choose right now between living and dying, eh, I don't know. Nobody says that. I choose live, thank you very much. To, to depart is, is very much better, but I know that I will stay on in the flesh. I know it. Where does this confidence come from? That he knows, as he could be executed at any moment, this will work out for my salvation. It'll be okay. I will come and see you soon. Now turn to Acts chapter 25. As Paul has been sitting in this prison cell, a couple chapters prior in chapter 23, verse 11, one night Jesus stands with him in that jail cell and says, you have boldly testified for me in Jerusalem. So now you will go to Rome and you will testify for me there. How does Paul know this will work out for his salvation? How does he know with such complete confidence that he's not going to die in the prison in Caesarea? Because Jesus said so. He promised him you will go to Rome. That's all that matters. That's all that Paul knows. And as we continue walking through these prison and courtroom narratives, we'll see Paul's confidence yet again as he stands before some of the most powerful leaders in the world. Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 1. Festus then, having arrived in the province after three days, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were pleading with him, requesting a favor against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem while they set an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go down there with me. If there's anything wrong about the man, let them accuse him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the judgment seat and ordered Paul to be brought. And after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I've committed no sin either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me on these matters? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had confirmed with his counsel, he answered, You've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. 
Now when several days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the judgment seat and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they were not bringing any charges against him for the evil deeds I was expecting. For they had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus a dead man whom Paul asserted to be alive. And being perplexed about how to investigate such matters, I was asking whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there to be tried on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp, and entered the hall accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the order of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Again, a very simple narrative, little storyline, that once again, Paul is brought before government leaders in a courtroom to defend himself against false charges. But as we walk through the text for the next few minutes, you will see Paul's demeanor, Paul's character presented in a few different ways that help us understand this is what it looks like to live out our faith today. Number one, Paul is a confident prisoner. He's a confident prisoner. We know he's been sitting for two years in this prison Originally held there under Felix, the local governor over the region. Felix departs. He's not very good at his job. The emperor recalls him to Rome and replaces him with Festus. Festus, the new governor, arrives on site and very quickly, as a smart politician, heads straight to Jerusalem, the capital of the region. He wants to check in with the leaders of his new province. And while he's there, the Jews immediately reignite their case against Paul. It's been two years since the last time they falsely accused him and tried to, to kill him. Remember, there was this very large conspiracy uh, to kill him on the road. That has not faded at all in two years. They're still angry and want him dead. Bring him back to Jerusalem to stand trial. Now, that's a legitimate request. That We believe his charges are relevant here. He committed these crimes in Jerusalem. He should be tried here. You don't commit a crime in Illinois and be tried on one of the coasts. You, you are, are tried near where all this goes down. That's a legitimate request. All the while, we're going to set an ambush and kill him on the way. Not a legitimate request. Festus, rightly so, refuses. That's not how we do this. 
The Romans have a high sense of justice. We don't just turn over prisoners to anybody who asks for them. So he tells them, you come down to Caesarea. I've got him there. Come down to the praetorium. That's where I live. And there's a courtroom there. If you've got a problem with him, bring the charges. That's what we'll do. And it's the same story that has happened all the other times. Verse 7. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. They come down. They gather around him. Now, let's, let's be reminded these are the people that have tried at least twice to assassinate him in the streets. These are not safe people. And Paul is brought in, and the Jews are standing where? Around him. This is an incredibly intimidating environment. But again, it's pure fabrication. They can't prove any of it. It's all false charges. And Paul's response is the same here as it has always been. He drops simple facts. Verse 8, Paul said in his own defense, I've committed no sin either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. That's all he has to say. Why is Paul so confident? Because he's telling the truth. Truth breeds confidence. I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to be intimidated because truth is on my side. But he's got an obstacle here. Verse 9, Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. That's scary. Because now the governor, who has the power under Roman law to execute him, the Jews can't do that, but Festus can. He wants to please his constituents. This is good for his career if he can keep the Jews happy. His predecessor had been recalled to Rome because he hadn't kept the Jews happy, and they kept rebelling. So now if he can smooth all this over, it's going to be very good for him. This is very dangerous then for Paul because he could simply be a political pawn. And his life is taken and everything just goes away. Verse 10. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's judgment seat. Festus represents Rome. Where I ought to be tried, I've done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. So if then I'm a wrongdoer, have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, Paul's been under Roman guard, therefore under Roman protection for quite some time. He's already used his Roman citizenship to his advantage. If you remember a couple chapters before, they're getting ready to beat him and torture him to get some information out of him to find out why the Jews are so mad at him. And that's where he chooses to drop seemingly calmly are you allowed to do that to a Roman citizen? Uh-oh, because they're not. It's illegal. You can't illegally bind. You cannot beat and torture a Roman citizen in Rome. So he's saved from all of that. Well, he now appeals to yet another perk of being a Roman citizen. If you were a Roman citizen, you can personally appeal your legal case to the emperor himself. Wouldn't that be nice? To, to have a system of government that so cares about justice that if I sense at all that I'm not getting true and full justice, I just appeal to the man himself. Take me before the leader of the world 
and he will hear my case, and he will decide whether this is real or false. So he appeals to Caesar. Caesar, at this time in history, as a little historical side note, is Emperor Nero. Nero is the Kim Jong-un of his day. Dangerous, insane, and scary. The difference, though, is Kim Jong-un runs a little nation that the rest of the world kind of laughs at. Nero ran the world. He's in charge of all of it. And over time, Nero proved to be one of the most deadly and dangerous men towards Christians in history. And Paul says, send me to him. Now consider for a minute the condemnation that that is on the Jews. The Jews who ought to be righteous and holy and care about biblical justice. Paul condemns them by saying, you know, Nero, the one who likes to kill us all, he is safer than you are. I would rather stand before him than stand before you because you will kill me as soon as you can. Paul has just written a couple years prior his letter to the Romans. And in Romans 13, 1 to 7, you can read those verses later, Paul writes about the purpose of human government. And he says, human government, these, these systems and structures of authority, God put in place. Those leaders that are over those human governmental systems and authorities, God put in place. And the purpose of those human governments is to punish the wicked and reward the righteous. And in a perfect world, that's how it's supposed to go. Paul doesn't live in that world, neither do we, but Paul believes what he has written as revealed to him by the Lord, and he trusts that God can and does use even pagan government systems for righteous judgment. He is innocent, so he is quite confident. He's a confident prisoner. Number two, Paul is a calm participant. As we've walked through these accounts of Paul flirting with death like it's just a normal Tuesday, He's constantly standing in these intimidating environments, including right now. Have you noticed? Nothing really seems to bother him. He's just calm. He's collected. Unflappable, it seems. Why is that? Well, we've noted in previous weeks, and we will continue to, to do so even with just a couple of chapters left in the book of Acts. We'll see it a couple more times still Paul is fully convinced of God's sovereign rule over all things. He knows that God is in charge. He has watched God maneuver. He has watched God orchestrate all these little details to accomplish his will. Plus, Paul really knows his Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39 God says, see now that I, I am he. There is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is none who can deliver from my hand. Paul knows that and knows that it's true. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 9. God says, remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My counsel will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Because Paul knows that that is true, he knows that this all-powerful God has already told him, you will go to Rome and you will testify for Christ there and he is utterly calm. But notice again, he's a calm participant. With this knowledge of a sovereign God who's in charge of all the little details, he does not sit back and do nothing. He is not aloof. He is not apathetic. He is active in working to accomplish the will of God who always accomplishes his will. Jesus told Paul, you're going to Rome. Well, if Paul gets turned over to the Jews, that could mean certain death. And he knows that. And Paul holds this legal trump card. I appeal to Caesar. That ensures 100% that Paul is going to Rome. But didn't the Lord already ensure 100% that Paul is going to Rome? Yep. You're going. Nothing will stop that. But how he's going to get to Rome is unknown to Paul. And he knows if I play this card... I'm going to Rome because that is God's will. Paul has a responsible role to play here. God is in charge and he will absolutely accomplish his will. Therefore, I make decisions to accomplish God's will. Those are not contradictory statements. They are complementary truths. Let me show you a couple places in the Bible that shows this is true. Turn back to your Old Testament to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah is this fun Old Testament book. The Jews have been held captive for 70 years, originally under the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar sweeps in and defeats the kingdom of Judah. So think Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of that. They've been carted off into this foreign pagan land for 70 years. They're under God's judgment for their unfaithfulness to the Lord. And the Medes take over. Then the Persians take over. Uh, So think Esther and all the stuff happening there. King Cyrus says, you can go home. Says to all the Jews, you can go back to Jerusalem. And you can rebuild the temple. You can rebuild the city walls. Well, Nehemiah, as a slave, is a personal servant in the court of the king of Persia. And he comes in one day and he doesn't look happy. He's sad because he's heard that the walls of the city of Jerusalem are broken down and have never been rebuilt. The king asks what's wrong and he says, how could I be happy? Look at at my home city. This is is God's home and it's broken down. And the king says, well, we'll go back and rebuild them like it's nothing. So Nehemiah goes there and they take a whole group of people back to set about rebuilding the walls of the city. And as soon as they start doing that, the enemies show up. 
because the enemies of the Jews are still all around and they don't want the walls to be rebuilt. They don't want the temple to be rebuilt. They don't want Israel to reassume, reassume its place as a world power. And those villains have names. Sanballat and Tobiah, among others. So notice Nehemiah chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Now it happened that when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, that the places broken down began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them joined together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So they're actively stopping the work and putting their lives in danger. Look at the response, verse 9. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we stood a guard against them day and night. Do you see both sides? We prayed. That's what you do. God, defeat our enemies. God, protect us from them. And get a sword. It's both. We've asked God to save us and protect us. He will do that. And he just might do that because I am armed. It's both. It's never either or. Now turn over to your New Testament, Philippians chapter 2. Again, it just so happens that Paul would write this from this very place in Acts 25. And in Philippians 2, Paul is writing to the church about their spiritual growth. Here's how you can grow into Christ-likeness and become a better Christian. In fact, after Thanksgiving, once we finish the book of Acts here in a few weeks, we're going to spend a few weeks leading up to Christmas talking about spiritual growth. What are the disciplines? What are the activities I can take part in to ensure that I'm growing in my faith? Well, here's what he writes. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? We understand that one. You've been saved. Work that out. Exercise that. Do something with it. Live out what it looks like to be a saved person. He's done all of this. You're now a Christian. So figure out, work it out, how to live now like a Christian. That's how it's supposed to go. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Get to work because God is at work. God's working in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So, because you, you know, Christian, that God is at work in your life, he's causing you to become more and more holy, more and more like Christ, what's the response to that? Do we sit back and go, sweet, I can sit on my couch and magically over time, I'm going to look in the mirror and it's going to be Jesus looking back at me. Wouldn't that be awesome, by the way? Too bad it's not true. Because God is working in me, because God is ensuring I'm growing in Christ-likeness, my response to that is I get to work. I do these things because God is already doing these things. It's never either or, friends. It is always both. God is doing his thing, therefore I respond. The biblical response to God's activity in the world is never laziness. It is never apathy. It's always commitment. It's obedience. It's faithfulness. It's action. God will absolutely accomplish his will. Nothing can stop him. And he will accomplish that will 
through all of your actions. So get to work. Number three, Paul is a confusing presence. Now, Paul's sitting there. He's appealed to Caesar. He's going to Rome. Nothing will stop that. So he's now going to be put under guard yet again, and you hang out until we can put you on a ship to get you to Rome. So he's sitting there, and while he's still there in prison, King Agrippa and Bernice show up. Let's talk about them for a minute. King Agrippa is King Herod Agrippa II. Anytime a king named Herod shows up, it's never good. The Christians are always in danger when a Herod shows up. Agrippa's great-grandfather, Herod the Great, is the Herod that wanted to kill the infant Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. His son, Herod Archelaus, was the ruthless leader who took over after Herod the Great died, and he was so dangerous that Joseph and Mary had to take the toddler Jesus to Nazareth, not back home to Bethlehem, because it was too dangerous for them in Matthew chapter 2. His other son, Herod Antipas, is the one who beheaded John the Baptist in Matthew 14. King Herod Agrippa II's dad, King Herod Agrippa I, very creative with their names, he's the one who killed the Apostle James and had Peter arrested but then was judged by God and killed by worms in Acts chapter 12. We had a lot of fun with that text a few months ago. This King Herod, Herod Agrippa II, never married, he never had any children. He's the last of what's known as the Herodian dynasty. They die out, praise the Lord. Bernice is his sister. Their younger sister is named Drusilla. She is the wife of Governor Felix that we were introduced to last Sunday. A very tight-knit, quite inbred group. So King Agrippa is there, the man over the region, with Bernice, Festus takes advantage of that. He doesn't know what to do with Paul. Well, Agrippa has knowledge of Judaism. He has a knowledge of Christianity. So he asks, what should I do? He's been left over from Felix. I don't know what to do from this. And he responds and says, well, I want to hear from Paul too. Bring him in. Okay, tomorrow we'll set up this event. Verse 23. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the hall, accompanied by the commanders and prominent men of the city at the order of Festus, Paul was brought in. They come in with great pomp. Pomp is the Greek word fantasia. They live in a fantasy world that they're important, that they're a big deal. And they set up this very royal, opulent event. It's designed to impress it's designed to let everyone in the region know this is how big of a deal they are. So Agrippa, Bernice walk in, certainly in their royal fashions, no doubt Festus does the same thing. And in comes Paul. An old prisoner in tattered clothes, and in the Roman system, he is a nobody. But as we'll talk about next week when we look at Paul's speech before King Agrippa, Whatever room Paul goes into, all of the attention is always on him. Have you noticed a theme in all of these courtroom proceedings? We've had several now because Paul just can't not get arrested. 
they don't quite know what to do with Paul. Is he guilty? Is he innocent? Is he worthy of death? Should we set him free? Is he Jewish? Is he Christian? Is he impure? Is he righteous? Felix can't decide. Festus can't decide. King Agrippa doesn't know what to do. Paul is an enigma to them. But at the very least, what they do here is for the first time, they narrow down what it is about Paul that makes him so confusing. It's his beliefs. Verse 19, as Festus is describing everything to Agrippa, he says, the Jews, they had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, a dead man whom Paul asserted to be alive. It all comes down to that. These are Romans, friends. These are the most educated people in the world at the time. And religiously, they are the most ignorant people in the world. They're in awe that Paul would believe such nonsense. That a dead man would come back to life and he would save all of these people. If you choose to believe the truths that you find in the Bible, if you choose to live out the truths that you find in the Bible, to quote my good friend Michael Beavers, who's a national treasure, by the way, (laughs) if you choose to believe the Bible, if you choose to live out the Bible, you are going to be weird. There is no way around it. You will be weird. You will be unlike the world. You will be different. You will be set apart. You will be other than. Which just so happens to be the literal definition of the word holy. And that is God's call on your life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Follow the example of the Apostle Paul, who exudes confidence, not in himself, but in his God, and has simply embraced, I am not like you. I am different. I am holy because my God is holy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful truths. Thank you for the example, again, of the Apostle Paul who stands in these places, in these moments, fearlessly. Help us to do that to walk into a world that doesn't always like, certainly doesn't agree, and is sometimes hostile to what we believe and what we do. Help us to embrace the weirdness because our authority is the Bible. We believe what it says. We do what it says because it is your revelation of yourself and your ways to us. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what the world believes. It doesn't really matter what they say. It doesn't really matter what they do. All that matters is what you say. And all that matters is what you tell us to do. 
Help us to be a confusing presence in the world so that people will ask questions that then we can answer with the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And as your people, we, we pause right now as we do every single Sunday to remind ourselves of those great truths because they're the foundation of our faith, they're the foundation of our church, they're the foundation of our lives. We're going to take a piece of bread and a cup of juice and be reminded that Jesus went to the cross in our place and took our sin onto himself and granted to us his righteousness so that we could be set free and forgiven of sin so that we could be granted eternal life. Thank you for the work of Jesus. We remember him now. In his name we pray. Amen.